0: Hello, this is Comeback, this is Connor, and this is episode 86. My guest today is Philip McKernan. Philip McKernan is an inspirational speaker, author, and filmmaker. He works with entrepreneurs and business leaders all over the world, helping them to seek clarity about their future and move through mental roadblocks. He is also the founder of the One Last Talk movement. I listened to Philip's interviews on London Real from 2015, 16, and 19 in preparation and was fully inspired. So it's a pleasure to speak to him today. Philip, how are you?
1: Great, thanks, Conor. Thanks for having me on.
0: Great stuff. So let's start then with the early years, Philip, if that's okay. You obviously are from Ireland, grew up in Ireland. What was life like for you growing up?
1: Um, Restricted in the sense that I had an enormous amount of freedom. I was the youngest of three boys. So by the time I came along, My brothers had broken every rule, broken, you know, some laws and different things. So by the time I came along, I had a a tremendous amount of freedom. But I also felt very trapped by the system that I was that I was in, whether it was the religious construct that I found myself in being a predominantly, um, you know, Christian and Catholic country and and certainly where I was living and um, the education system. And and both of those things represented bars to me, uh, bars as in prison bars and I felt really, really, really trapped uh, for, for many, many years. Um, so so that's, that gives you a kind of a sense into my, my upbringing. Um, uh, you know, some of it created by myself and some of it genuine constraints by the system, but feeling constrained and trapped to some extent, I think would um, summarize, I suppose, the darker side of, of, of my upbringing.
0: I see, and then with these restrictions, what do you think the main challenges were for your mental health throughout this period? Were there any particular events that really affected you and that you had to really try hard to overcome in your later life?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think that sense of being restricted is is something that you then live with. And then you, it starts to limit you automatically. You start to constrain yourself then, you know, I think, when you grow up with anything um, that's sustained over a period of time, whether it's um, you know physical abuse, whether it's poverty, whether it's um, you know you know physicality, you know not having the body that you you know ultimately know deep down you could have or whatever, I think when you when you live with something that that doesn't serve you for so long, it becomes familiar. It becomes uh, almost a place of safety, which is is, is it might feel and sound counterintuitive, and of course it does, and it is but it doesn't mean it's not true. So I think what happened is I became very accustomed and used to this sense of being constrained, almost like if I could use a corny analogy, this idea of having your foot on the accelerator, but also having the other foot firmly or softly, depending on the day or the month or the year, leaning on the brake, in other words, my biggest enemy in terms of forward momentum and and giving myself permission to do the things I wanted to do in the world, even though sometimes they weren't fully clear. Was myself. Um, Amongst that, on top of that, I suppose if I had to add in another another challenge for me was this idea of of learning disabilities. Um, There's no doubt that that shaped, you know, me in some respects. It made me stronger. It made me weaker. It made me um, see and feel the world differently. And that was. you know, a fairly you know, good dose of dyslexia, uh, even though I've never been formally diagnosed, but I can I can I can sense it. I can see it in my own kids to some extent as well. And because the system wasn't set up to support me and I did a great job hiding it, uh, I was labeled as being stupid and lazy uh, and stupid or lazy, uh, depending on the day as well.
0: OK, I see. And when you were going through these challenges, for example, the learning disabilities or whatever else was coming up. How did you ultimately, say, challenge yourself and break out of it to do what you really wish to do authentically?
1: Yeah, I think for me, you know, later on in life, I had to break free of some of those shackles. But I think in the earlier days, I became a really good actor and I pretended um, that it didn't affect me. I pretended I didn't want to go to college when I desperately did want to go because I was I didn't want to be on my own. I wanted to go with my friends. Um, and, uh, I hid, I, I did a really good job hiding. I, I remember working with a, um, a, a soccer coach, or football coach, uh, depending on the country of, 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 of where your listeners are. Um, and he played at a very high level in the UK and England. And, um, I remember asking him about this idea of hiding. And he looked at me with a, with a slightly perplexed perspective until I gave it some context. And the context was that hiding, we often, um, I suppose, linked to this hide-and-seek idea as kids, for example, where you hide behind a rock or a bush or a tree um, or a sofa. Um, But in in fact, in reality, a lot of very, very well-known people, leaders in the world, or people who are in the public domain also hide. Um, Artists hide from their greatest music, their greatest artistry. We hide from our greatest gifts. We hide from ourselves. And he looked at me and suddenly he went almost pale. And he looked at me, he said, I'd hide on the pitch and I said, what do you mean? And he goes, in the middle of a game, I'd hide. I'd stand one yard to the right or one yard to the left. And yet I'd have my hand raised seeking the ball and the Mm -hmm. ball represented responsibility. The the ball represented fame, the ball represented failure the ball represented all these different things. And yet I couldn't believe the honesty that this man could hide in front of 40, 50,000 people. And I think a lot of us hide from ourselves and therefore we hide from the world and we deprive ourselves in the world of, of our greatest gifts in that process. So I did a brilliant job hiding. I, I, if there was a hide and seek Olympic sport, no one else in the world would need to travel to Japan or anywhere else for, to compete. I would, uh, I would win gold before I even left. They just send me the medal.
0: I see. And do you think with this sense of hiding, do you think we also make a mistake of maybe at a young age contextualizing our traumas. So we'll think, oh, well, this person has it worse than I do. So maybe mine isn't valid. I should say, push through it, get over it, man up. These are all phrases rather than actually stop hiding and confront our trauma head on.
1: Absolutely, 100%. I I think we... We belittle our traumas, um, and some of us are still holding on to this idea that we haven't been traumatized. Um, and uh, if, you were, if you've if you been on this planet um, and you literally have, have have left your bedroom, and even if you haven't, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of being traumatized when you're confined to the, the, the four walls of your bedroom, um, there is not a human being that has, that has walked this earth that hasn't been traumatized. Um, so you have a lot of people who are still in denial of, of any type of trauma, that it didn't exist. And if they finally open their eyes or their hearts or their souls and begin to imagine and explore the fact that they have, one of the very first things we do is we compare to others, which immediately diminishes what we've been through. And I've often said this, and and this has often been very misunderstood from from other people when I've said this, and it has not varied a whole lot in terms of the very first day I said it, my trauma was the worst trauma in the world because it was happening to me. Um, the minute I, I contextualize my trauma versus somebody else, I, I, I do not, um, I do not have the opportunity to begin to understand how it has affected me both positively, and mentally, and 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 and, uh, and positively, you know, and and and, and in a, from a from a from a negative perspective. Um, it doesn't mean that I I don't have compassion and empathy for other people. And, um, but it's, it's, it was one of the biggest mistakes I was making was taking the traumas and the subtleties that I had gone through and were going through. And I didn't give them the, I didn't give them, I didn't honor the significance they played in my life. And therefore I kept going through life, stumbling through making mistakes, wondering why I could never get ahead and that I could never land in, into the work that I wanted to do
0: do you think that's also the same as achievements say we like to either exaggerate our achievements or belittle them and also contextualize them in comparison to others where we think oh our achievements aren't as significant as another person's and therefore maybe not say realize the progress we're making does this make sense
1: yeah yeah i think we're 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 very good at um as it was proving to ourselves in the world that whatever we've done, it's not enough. And yet for many of us, that if we could turn back the clock 10 years ago and we could see who we are today and what we've become today, we probably, in some cases, if not many cases, would have taken those odds. We would have said, God, yeah, I'll take that all day long. But as we go through life, it, it happens very, very slowly, and we have ups and downs. And, and we also tend to compare ourselves to a lot of you know, public-facing figures. I always use the, the analogy or the example of an old movie, uh, depending on your age, whether it's old or not, trains, planes, and automobiles. And when you ask people who are the stars, who are the film stars in that movie, most people who've seen it will say John Candy and Steve Martin. And I, and I always go, and... And they go, no, they were supporting actors and, you know, people with small roles and everything else, but there was nobody well known. And I said, what about Kevin Bacon? They go, no, he wasn't in that movie. And I said, he was, he was in the very beginning of that movie in this scene in New York where Steve Martin, I believe, comes out of a, an office building and there's one cab turns on its light and he looks across and gets eye contact with a young Kevin Bacon who was in the film in the movie for no more than maybe 60 seconds, maybe 30 seconds. And he didn't say one word and yet we look at someone like a Kevin Bacon or a Harrison Ford or whoever, fill in the blank, and we see them arriving at some pinnacle in their career and we aspire to follow in that footsteps. We look at the Elon Musks of the world, we look at the Richard Bransons of the world and I've been fortunate to meet a lot of these, these men and women and and, and, and yet we all understand what I'm about to say makes sense, but very few of us actually really deep down believe this, and that is they're all human. They're all fundamentally flawed and beautifully imperfect at the same time and, um, and, and, and brilliant, um, all, all of the above. But we don't realize that these men and women have had to go through horrors, uh, failures, misery, loneliness, isolation, insecurity. We all think that they're built differently. They've got a different blood type or they've got a a different thing in their DNA or they're just wired differently. And to some extent they have different character traits but they're not a whole lot different than anybody else. And yet we use that as a reason to stay small in the world and to play small and not to show up.
0: Yeah, I think this might lead to vulnerability as well. For example, I think we do put people on pedestals in the public domain such as the examples you mentioned, and one example that has resonated with me is world heavyweight boxing champion Tyson Fury, who was previously lauded as a superhero. He was also hated, but when he opened up about his vulnerabilities, his depression, his anxiety, his fall from grace, that's when the public seemed to take him on again, because they realized he is one of us, and I wonder if that makes vulnerability a superpower. Do we does it, yeah, do we connect more? do we share more with others when we are prepared to be vulnerable and show the other side of the coin that isn't you know the superstar that they're made out to be?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the, I, I don't know that story. I don't know him really at all, but uh, much about his story, but but based on what you've said to me, um, you know, and you said the public you know kind of tuck him back in, so to speak, I would say they took him in in a different way. I think they intellectualized him and put him on a pedestal and and imagined him to be something at home and in the boxing ring at the same time. In other words, they filled in the blanks on their own accord. And he has a responsibility with that. He he didn't fill in the blanks early enough in the process and say, well, actually, I'm not quite the person you think I am or, 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 or look up to. Uh, and that's his choice. So, so in the absence of that truth, I suppose, then people start to make their own assumptions and we continually to get let down by, you know, people in any form of authority, whether it's a priest who does something wrong in society, whether it's an entrepreneur who turns out to be not quite as, as, as flawless as everyone thought, um, and, and, and then we, we blame them, we get angry at them, but we, we also have this incredible opportunity to look in the mirror and say, well, why did I put him on a pedestal? Why did I put her on this pedestal? You know, I didn't live with them. I never got to see them when they got out of bed without their makeup on and who they really were. I never got to see them when they were really cranky and angry. So we, we, we do put people on pedestals. It happens to me all the time, um, You know, particularly when you speak at an event with thousands of people in the room and people look up to you, but th- there's a reason they look up to you. They look up to you because you're one, physically on a stage. Secondly, is you're presented as an authority. And three is because you don't necessarily do a good job taking yourself off that pedestal, which I think every everybody... On Earth um, needs to needs to do, uh, particularly with their children. By the way, because we often grow up idolizing our, our parents, our one parent, um, and secretly, you know, seeking their validation for the rest of our lives, yearning their 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 pride and their love in in a way that uh, sometimes we follow a, an entire career path based on nothing other than. Wishing that my dad, and it's often men, um, for for particularly for other men, mm. um, walks up to me one day and says, "I'm proud of you for uh, getting that gold medal, building that billion-dollar business, um, you know, you know, reaching two million downloads in your podcast, whatever it is." And the reality is that even when it comes, it's always empty if you're not doing the right thing. In other words, if you're not doing the thing you were meant to do, it always, it, it's always empty, even if it comes, and it typically doesn't. And it's when we stop looking for that validation from others, when we stop caring what other people think to a larger extent, it'll never eradicate it. Um, do we give ourselves permission to show up in the way that we were meant to and that we want to? And we stop giving a fuck what the world you know sees us as and what labels we have. And that is the the irony of it is that's the only time you'll get a real genuine authentic compliment from the people that you've been yearning it from it's the only time it's possible and it's the only time you'll actually believe it because you'll accept it for the essence of of the way in which it's been presented which is is the truth
0: what do you think the main things we can do to say stop caring what the world thinks or really going down the route that only we think what do you think are the main things we can do to yeah to have a better relationship with ourselves
1: well i think one is is to understand why why we why we operate and care so much what other people think to really understand what, rather than moving to, to change that so if i go to a physiotherapist and and uh, he said listen your knee is your knee is giving you problems it's weak and i and i go great so I just build up my knee he goes well yeah but you got to understand why your knee is weak. Uh, really what's happening is your, your your arch and your foot is the problem. I'm just making this shit up, obviously. But your arch and your foot is the problem. So we need to strengthen your arch so you never have to face the knee problem again. So it, it, I think what we we work in, in society is we work way too hard to to either take the painkillers, fix the knee, use a brace, which is a Band-Aid, what I my work is all about is, okay, now I want to get to the core of why this exists to begin with, because then we can start to uh, explore and penetrate the origin of the reason that it exists to begin with. So I think before we we set out to stop giving a shit what the world thinks about us, which, by the way, number one, is I think is absolutely impossible. I think we can diminish it and reduce it over a period of time. But I think the day we wake up and say, I don't give a shit what the world thinks is the day we've gone from being aware to complacent. In other words, we've 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 we think we're at a point where we're not, because I, I have yet to meet a human being that has transcended the thoughts and the the ideas that people have for them or the the way in which people talk about them. I have yet to meet that person. In my personal opinion, they don't exist or they're lying about it. So understanding why is it so important that I get validated by externally? Why, Why does that exist? Where did that come from? When did I start that? Is that a human trait or is that a personal pattern that I have developed and accelerated over a period of time? What does it give me? How real is it? Where does it emerge? Is it really with certain people or is it every single person? Who are the people that I'm really seeking validation from? When I'm yearning Connor to tell me I'm amazing, is Connor just a trigger or a pressure point or a representative of a father figure that I never had? And when you begin to really pair it back and understand what is the origin of this, then you can start to actually address it at its, at its core. And that might require you to have conversations that might require you. And also this beautiful idea of, of acceptance. I do care what people think. Great. Now, how do I move through life, accepting that rather than rejecting that, but still navigate and make decisions that I want to make? And I think than pretending it doesn't exist, I think you're in a stronger position to make better decisions that will serve you in the short, medium, and long term.
0: I remember one concept that I heard on um, your London Real interview, which really resonated was spending time with yourself. For example, maybe once every few months, just spending time with yourself, no partner, no friend, just yourself. Why do you feel that's so important that we have that time just to reflect as solely an individual?
1: Yeah, and I and I think that's, by the way, you're touching on something that I think is critical. I think one of the reasons we care so deeply what people think is that we don't really care what we think about ourselves. Um, or we're too busy beating ourselves up. So the relationship to ourselves is in my personal view, the most single the single most important relationship on earth. And for for people who are, 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 are very religiously inclined or maybe even spiritually inclined, which I believe I am very spiritual in, in nature, they may firmly disagree with that. They may feel that the most important relationship is our connection to some sort of higher power inside of ourselves. Um, I, I actually believe it's it's one of the same thing. But I think the relationship to ourselves is, and I'm so glad you brought this up, Connor, because I think that ultimately, the reason we care so much what people think is because we have a dysfunctional relationship with ourselves. And one of the ways to begin to understand whether that's true or not is when was the last time you spent time on your own? And somebody will go off. For God's sake, I'm going to turn this podcast off. I just watched the game last night. I watched Scotland beat whatever. I watched England play whoever. No, 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 no. That's not time on your own. That's time watching something or doing something. When was the last time you took a night away and spent it on yourself? And people go, oh, to strategize, to, to write, to, to journal, to notice it, to do nothing, to just be, nor is it formal silence. It's, it's just to be with yourself. And when people start to explore what I'm actually talking about, what they'll often find is they can't even get into the car without the radio on because they can't be with themselves. And people will often cite busyness. Oh, I've got four kids. You don't know what it's like. No, no, no. You have four kids because you chose to have four kids. You've got two businesses because you chose to have two businesses. You don't, you don't have the time of day to spend with yourself, not because you're busy, because you choose to be busy. The reason you're busy is because you're hiding from an uncomfortableness potentially within yourself. Hence, the reason you've created the busyness. Business doesn't happen to you. You happen to it. You create it in your life. So to me, the most important relationship is, is the one with ourselves. And I think if we can begin to navigate and explore that and make some gentle tweaks on that, corner. like I'm not talking like 180s and yeah, sure. degree changes, really slight changes in how we view ourselves in the world. I think what will happen is you'll start to turn a little bit inward in a healthy way to the wisdom you already have, rather than looking for it and searching
0: for it externally in the world. I see Can we move on to one last talk then? What was the idea behind one last talk? How did you begin and what is one last talk?
1: So essentially if I had to sum up one last talk is imagine you have a Ted event or TEDx event, and you've got 15 minutes on stage, but um, the difference is that you're not sharing ideas. You're sharing the one last talk you'll ever give before you die. And, um, I wouldn't call them rules, but they're guidelines. And the guidelines are basically that it's not an opportunity to tell the world what it should do. It's not an opportunity to share what you believe about global warming, Donald Trump, um, Brexit, or anything else for that matter. It's an opportunity to share a part of your personal narrative that perhaps the world has never heard. And perhaps one that you don't put a value on. And perhaps one that, in essence, you could even be ashamed or embarrassed about but the idea behind it is that it's an opportunity to create um, an experience of, of genuine vulnerability um, um, and, and give other people permission to realize that when they hear your talk, that it gives them permission to realize they're not on their own. So essentially, One Last Talk exists to eradicate loneliness uh, for as many people as possible. And that is that it's, it's that's its primary purpose. And to free those who stand on stage and share their One Last Talk into knowing that they have value in the world. And it's... Primarily for people who are not big name speakers, um, authors, and and, and gurus, um, because honestly, many of those men and women don't know or don't want to be or choose not to be uh, vulnerable because they feel that it would weaken their position um, in the authoritative, you know, nature that they have, and expression they have, and position they have. I suppose in the world, um, and that's that's basically the the the, the purpose behind it.
0: What would you say to somebody who doesn't think they have a one last talk in them?
1: Bullshit. Sorry for, for, the, for, the, for the maybe the, 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 the callous use of word there, but bullshit. It's, it's just completely not true. And what it tells me straight away is that um, you don't put a value on yourself. You don't put a value on what you've been through and you've diminished some of the things that have happened to you uh equally if someone says to me i've got 51 last talks well that could be true as well but i I think that's the other way of escaping the one one last talk you really want or need to give um but the the typical response connor we get when i ask somebody to do one last talk they go oh god no 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 i've got a friend connor i mean he could could i just put you guys in touch his story is amazing
0: absolutely and yet
1: if if, if they go through the process and it, and there is a real methodology to it, it's not just, hey, sit down and create a talk and up you get. It, it, there's a real process in extracting this. And it's also deeply therapeutic, in my opinion. Um, when they get up and give their talk, even if they choose not to do it on a stage and they give it to one person or they do the one last letter process or whatever, well, in the inevitability of every single person is, oh my God, I didn't realize my story mattered. I didn't realize it would resonate with anybody. And what they start to see then is that actually the stuff that has been most awkward or painful or challenging or shameful or embarrassing or weird or whatever is actually the thing that they need to share. And also the thing the world needs to hear from them. Like I've literally run this Connor in a prison in a, in a, in a reasonably high security prison. Uh, very few people know this. We, we ran seven men through the program. We uh, people said you'd never be allowed to do it. You'll never pull it off. And with the support of others, of course, but we, we, we not just managed to get permission to do it in a prison in America. We managed to get an audience in to listen to the inmates, seven inmates, give their one last talks. Half the audience were inmates, fellow inmates, and half the audience were the public. And on top of all of that, we got to record every talk. And I'm telling you, Conor, I've, I've seen some extraordinary things. I've, I've been fortunate to sit in the Pentagon and, and talk there. I've, been, I've, I've, I've worked with Olympic teams. I've worked with professional soccer players, billionaires. People have no money. People start now, young people, kids, schools. Like I've had the most eclectic, extraordinary, extraordinary journey. But I have never witnessed anything in my existence ever as, as extraordinary, as chilling, as, as healing as those seven talks in that environment, in that prison that day. I've never experienced something like we've never released those talks. We will eventually. Um, mm-hmm. um, it just never felt like the right thing to do. We could have commercialized them, but we're going to release them in a very considerate way, um, you know, through the podcast or maybe just privately or whatever. I don't know, but it's um, the healing that happened in that room. Th- that day was uh, beyond anything I could ever have imagined.
0: I see. And then with this, Whole coronavirus pandemic how has that affected one last talk I presume you haven't been able to get in these sort of environments as a result of it
1: yeah I mean our our business overnight um you know was 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 down 90 95 percent because what we have chosen to do over the years is to double down on live and the big word here is intimate experiences we don't do you know hundreds and hundreds of people in a room i'm not criticizing that that's fine it's just not our it's not what i believe is the best environment for people to to really explore deep down within themselves um in a curious safe environment uh, particularly as it relates to the work i do so we had these smaller gatherings you know 15 20 25 people and one last talk on occasion will be bigger but um it was gone overnight and while we did some activity online um we were we we're playing the long game um we, we believe that Live intimate events um, is going, are going to come back in, in a very, very big way. Um, in fact, I think live intimate events are, are the future. And uh, it also obviously affected One Last Talk. So we didn't do One Last Talk. Um, we did a couple of online ones um, and people bought the One Last Talk book. So they went through it on their own and went through the process on their own. Um, but yeah, our business has been massively affected. Um, but um, I'm okay with that.
0: Okay, I see. And coming up to the final couple of questions... Do you mind expanding a bit more about Ireland? Because, and I don't mean to say stereotype, but I feel as if a lot of Irish people have a mentality of don't get too big for your boots. Um, you know, maybe say downplay their achievements and not want to go for it in say the way that in America, it would be celebrated to follow your dreams. Um, what does Ireland mean to you? And how did you make the decision to leave Ireland in pursuing your work?
1: So, I, so that's a huge question. And, and 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 there's so many different ways I could go with that. And quite frankly, honestly, Connor, I could spend an hour talking about that question alone, but I'll try to break it down as best I can. I, I feel that Ireland was never the place I was going to leave. Um, of all the siblings and, and you know, uh, kids in our family, there's only three boys, but I was definitely the one that was going to stay at home and um, I was never going to leave the island of Ireland. And I didn't really want to at one level. Uh, I felt compelled and and I needed to. And I suppose that brings me on to the first point is that sometimes we need to let go of the environment that we're in, in order to begin to assemble and understand who we really are. And what I mean by that is when you're surrounded by a construct, when you're surrounded by people who see you in a particular way, It's very, very difficult for you to reinvent yourself. It's very, very difficult for you to become something else because many of us are surrounded by family who want us to be happy, but also equally, many of us are surrounded by people or family who want us to be happy. They just don't want us to change because that change stirs a lot in them and it makes them very uncomfortable. So while my family wanted me to be happy, they didn't want me to be different. They didn't want me to change. And I think that's very, very, very typical of the the Irish psyche and many psyches around the world. So I I left. It was the right thing to do. I feel really proud of the fact that I went to Canada, spent nine years in Canada, four years in the United States. Won't get into the details of how difficult it is to go to a foreign place place where you know almost nobody and you start a brand new uh, business in a brand new industry knowing nobody in a brand new country i can't even begin to tell you how difficult that was and how painful and how challenging financially emotionally mentally loneliness has been a huge part of my life um since i was a very young kid and, and and continue through that and in recent times, and you may or may not know this, is we've decided to come back to Ireland. I'm sitting on the West Coast. I'm look, literally looking at the Atlantic Ocean as I sit here today. And um, it, it may be a story for a different day, but we've basically become stewards or purchased a um, an amazing old Gaelic castle, which is anywhere between five and 700 years old with 22 acres. And we're going to create a leadership center here and a place of healing and a place of growth and a place of of of. of creating people who are going to go out and impact the world in a positive way, essentially. So it's been an extraordinary journey of going to Canada, going to the United States, coming back to Ireland. But what Ireland means to me is this, is this is home. And when I say home, I don't mean home because I was born here, home because my name is somewhat Irish or home because my birth's earth or my passport. I'm talking about a sense of home that goes so deep inside of me that when I really touch base with it, I start to cry. And I think that is something that so many human beings are longing for. And I think we're running around in many cases, like head, headless chickens, looking for this, looking for that, looking to achieve this, hoping to get financial security. And, and I, and I love this idea of coming home, not physically, but emotionally within yourself, coming home to the work you're meant to do, coming home to the relationship with yourself, coming home to the relationships that are the most important to you, coming home to yourself is the most important thing on earth. And, um, And it was time for us to physically manifest that as well, not just emotionally with the work I do. And my hope is that people will come to Ireland
0: to the work that
1: we do so they can find home within themselves.
0: see. And then that brings me nicely really to the final question, Philip, which is what are the aims for the future? You've obviously moved back to Ireland. What sort of things are you looking to achieve in the near future with One Last Talk or any other endeavours?
1: Yeah, we want to we want to we want to open one last talk to the world. We want people to feel that they can access it and and do it in their home, do it in their business, do it do it uh, in in different capacities. Um, and we want to open source that and and gift that away to the world. I mean, that's essentially the the idea, um, and and make that less commercial and and more of a, a gift to the world. A kind of a not a legacy because legacy piece can often be very egotistical, but but a, a just a gift to the world in essence. Um, our core more intimate, intensive gatherings. we want those to be run in Ireland. Um, so we're reversing the business model to some extent whereby we're gonna be doing all of our events here rather than just one event annually. And uh, we've created a physical location for that, or we didn't create it, the physical location has been there for many hundreds, in fact, thousands of years. Um, and we've bought a, an extraordinary piece of land with a, an amazing building um, that has more wisdom in its walls than I ever will in my brain or soul or heart. So our job is to listen to that place and allow it to allow it to guide us as we become stewards of it. And uh, as I said, create a, a place of healing, growth and impact uh, here in Ireland um, through the brave work that we do and, and and allow people to come and experience that and then go back into their own lives and be more courageous and to show up more. Um, but m- most importantly, to impact others, to get out of our own way and realize that we're not here for ourselves. We're here. With one sole purpose in my personal opinion that is to affect other people's lives and by doing that we actually inadvertently have it has a huge effect on ours so that is my my goal to do that for as many people as i can before i die
0: and um is there anywhere we can find out more about what you do on social media or on the internet
1: Yeah, philipmckernan.com is uh, the easiest, the easiest way. One last talk.com as well, but philipmckernan.com is the the easiest way. And then obviously I'm on Instagram. I'm um, not a huge social media guy, but I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Instagram, if you want to follow the the story of this castle, and bring it back to life. Um, and my handle is philip philipmckernan, uh, I think. Um,
0: yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, Philip, as I said at the start, I listened to the London Real interviews, and I was particularly struck by a lot of the concepts mentioned. So to have this chat today, and I say this genuinely, has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for all the work you do, and thank you very much for sharing that with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Connor. Appreciate you following up and um, and inviting me on and, and uh, giving me this time. Thank you.
0: Great stuff. So yeah, all the very best, Philip, and thanks again.
1: Yeah, Connor, appreciate your time. Take care and thank you.